Let's see. We are going to finish Joel. Yay! It's hard to be sentimental about a book you've been in for a whole three weeks, isn't it? You, you can't even feel like you're going to miss it. We were barely here, but it's okay. That sometimes we, we, I use some of the shorter books. This is terrible, but I do try to plan this out. That If we've been in a book for any length of time, it's nice to get a shorter book real quick. Just feel like we accomplished something, you know? And also, I like to make sure we don't spend all of our time doing letter after letter after letter. I like to kind of hop back and forth. So to go from a letter and then get some prophecy. If you've read in your bulletin, we're all going to be depressed again starting next week. So <laughs> it'll be fun. Hey, you survived Job. Ecclesiastes can't be worse than that, right? <laughs> It'll be fine. So, let's see. In Joel, judgment has been proclaimed. Salvation has been proclaimed. Why isn't this book over? I mean, isn't that kind of it? Why are you a prophet, Joel, to proclaim judgment and salvation? Well, we've done that, so now what? Lesson for life. God condescends in many, many ways. We uh, typically only think of the condescension of God as Christ taking on flesh, that he has condescended to live amongst us, to be as we are. One of the ways, though, that God does condescend is that he answers objections, even when he doesn't have to. I mean, if anybody gets to, prove, gets to pull the because I said so card, shouldn't God? I'm going to do this. Why, Lord? <laughs> but we don't get that, do we? You should probably deserve it more often, but typically we actually get answers. We get understandings of why the objections are not worthy of either a good answer or we actually get a good answer. Chapter 3 of Joel is a good example of this. We're going to dig into what that judgment is, not the um, not the when and the how, because let's be honest, what's the, quest, what's the question you want more than anything answered? Yeah, oh, day of the Lord. When? Are there actually like battle locusts or is this, you know, the, the Hal Lindsey, you know, Apache attack helicopters thing? I would like that question answered, but I'm not getting that question answered. God doesn't give you the how. He doesn't give you the when. He gives you the why. And that's what's more important because it helps ground you for the world in which you live and it helps focus you in the midst of this world. So that is chapter three. Let's have some fun and dive right in. Sound good? All right. For behold, verse 1, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, just to make sure nobody's forgotten anything, what are those days? Well, you have to go back a chapter to Joel 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Later on in the chapter, the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. So the same thing we've talked about, judgment and mercy. Judgment against sin, mercy for God's people. By the way, who are God's people? <laughs> See, this is again why you have to read the entirety of Scripture. Great understanding of this. I don't even remember who said this anymore, but it doesn't matter because it's still worth repeating. The Old Testament is a book without an ending. The New Testament is a book without a beginning. You need both of them to make sense of each of them. If you just read your Old Testament, you're sitting there going, and... Now what? <laughs> I got all this history, I got all this prophecy, and if you read your New Testament, you have John coming in. In the spirit and power of Elijah. What's an Elijah? 
What's this spirit and power? What, what do you mean when you're going to, what is this making mountains low and building ravines up? Where does that come from? What are we talking about? Repent of your sin. What sin? What are you people, what are all of you people on about? You actually need the history of the Old Testament in order to understand the teachings and work of your New Testament. I remind you of that because God's work is not done. And when Joel is giving his prophecy, God's work is not done. So if you were in 9th century B.C. Judah, and someone told you the people of God, what would be your default? Who is that? The Jews. Now, should that be the only answer? Would that be the answer Elijah would receive? All the Jews are just fine, right? Ahab's a Jew. Jezebel's a Jew. And always remember the lesson of Jezebel. She was so wicked and evil that almost 3,000 years later, her name is still an insult. That's... I mean, that's just, makes you wonder if there's a whole bunch of kids running around Germany. I, I doubt there's a whole lot of German children named Adolf. And I'm serious. Now, maybe fast forward 100 or 200 years and won't be as, you know, much of a black mark. But can you imagine 3,000 years later, there's not a whole lot of Jezebels running around. That's how wicked and sinful. So is it all Israel? No. It's the faithful of Israel. Now fast forward to your New Testament. You see the work of the church. You see the work of the Holy Spirit expanding throughout the world. And you suddenly see Gentiles being saved. So now you have to ask, who are the people that God is working for? Things like Galatians 3. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. That's part of what this promise is. That's part of your standing as a Christian. This is, again, why we understand the prophetic word the way that we understand it and why we ground it in the accomplishments of Christ. First off, remember the lesson from your Bible. You read your Bible, you get to the end, what's the answer? Jesus is the answer. So who accomplishes these things? Jesus. Where is this work done? Jesus. Who is this centered upon? Jesus. Every single time. That includes the prophetic ministry. You're building towards something. You're building for a people. In those days, the day of the Lord, the coming judgment when mercy is poured out on God's people and judgment is poured out upon all sin. Ooh, ooh, restoring the fortunes of Jude and Jerusalem. Well, who were Jude and Jerusalem supposed to be representative of? The faithful of Israel. Christian, that's you. Now, I tell you this not because you didn't know that, but because typically we try to segment ourselves so very often. The world would love for you to think of yourself as not standing in a history of redemption, not standing in the line of faithful Christians come before. To segment yourself. No, no, no. We're Americans. They're Jewish. There's something else. There's people who follow after Christ, and there's people who don't. There's, there you go. Those are your people. You've heard my joke before. I had a friend of mine in high school gave me this one. That's where this always came from. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those that like Neil Diamond and those that don't. (laughs) It is true, but it's true of a lot of things like that. It's just always a funny example because nobody ever thinks Neil Diamond should be the line of demarcation. (laughs) There you go. But at the end of the day, there are only two types of people, Christians and none. Sinners, saints, redeemed, and pagan. Those are the categories. You only fit in one of the other. The world wants to water down those categories because as the world can divide believers, as the world can divide humanity, it makes it a lot easier to deceive and delude humanity's thinking and understanding. Well, again, what's the original lie and the only real lie that the world has been using? Did God really say? Enter into your world. We've talked about this before. What's the argument from the secular world? 
It's never, no, 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 you need to allow this. It's always, don't you want to be loving? Don't you want to be kind? Don't you want to be caring? Don't you want to be thought well of? And you start saying what? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, this is what loving in this world looks like. And you're going, but, 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 but. you don't want to be mean. You don't want to be spiteful. You don't want to be hateful. Stop being nice. Start being true. That's a hard thing for Christians. It is. Because we have conflated in our modern world. The world has been wonderful for us. And I'm serious about that. You live better now than 99.9% of humanity that has ever lived. Like your world now, even if you are almost dirt poor in this country, is better than royalty 300 years ago. I mean, you, you, you go and turn a knob and there's hot water. <laughs> you go and press a button and I am more comfortable in the living room. Even if you don't have, you know, really great central heat or central air, you can turn on a fan. You can go look at old castles. There's a reason why nobody actually wanted to live in them unless they had to because they're cold and they're drafty and they're miserable. And that's why they hung these beautiful tapestries. It was a way to try to keep heat so we didn't all catch pneumonia and die walking down the staircase. Showers. Just imagine no more showers ever again. That's the bulk of humanity until like 100 years ago. <laughs> You're like, I take this for granted. I do this multiple times a day just to feel better about myself. That's not a thing. Now, why do I remind you of that? Because as your comforts increase, your love for the world increases. And as your love for the world increases, your agreement with the philosophies, understandings, and arguments of the world increases. So don't you want to be nice? Yes, yes, I want to be nice. Don't you want to be caring? Yes, yes, I want to be caring. Don't you want to be loving? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Well, here's what that looks like. Ooh, see, but you ran into the truth. And you ran up against the truth. And now I have to make a decision. And if we are not grounded and we are not thinking properly and we are not looking with our eyes open, we will take their definition, use it as our own, abandon biblical truth, and think we're standing on solid ground. This is why I tell you all the time you have to be wary and thinking. Now, what are you looking for? That's the rest of this chapter. Let's keep going. Verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Again, I tell you, if you're looking for names, Jehoshaphat, not a whole lot of Jehoshaphats running around in kindergarten, it's a good name. Encourage your grandkids to name their kids Jehoshaphat. <laughs> now, this is not a solitary idea in your Old Testament. Isaiah has a, uh, has a good passage in this, Isaiah 66. I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Now, don't get hung up on where the valley of Jehoshaphat is, because I got a really simple answer for you. We have no idea. We have no idea. And at the end of the day, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The day of the Lord will come and judge how much of sin? All sin. God's people will be redeemed and placed into his kingdom. How many of them? All of them. So you don't have to panic about the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's not a big deal. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Now, this is where understanding the whole of your Bible can start to make sense, and we can put some things in perspective. So, you have this in Joel, uh, late 9th century BC, Micah, writing a little bit later on, 
chapter 4, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You even get an expanded picture of this in your New Testament, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's Jesus, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And you can read the rest of that yourselves. This is one of the reasons why I don't panic about trying to figure out the day or the hour or anything like that. God will deal with all of sin, and when God comes back, you're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. The nations will stream to the mountain. I don't need to know, like, I don't need to be able to program into my GPS the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I don't need to panic about when or the day or the hour or any like that. I have a standing. It is based upon Christ. He has not forsaken me. He has not forgotten me. He will not forsake or forget any of his people. Therefore, I'm not going to miss it. And you, you laugh, but this is why 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are basically written. The, the, the letter to the Thessalonians is, imagine, imagine these poor people. They're sitting there in their church going, we missed it. People came by and told us Jesus came back and we missed it. And they're all freaked out. And Paul's like, deep breath. It's okay. God's not going to forget his people. You're not going to miss it. There's an order on how this will work and God will get you in your due time. See, we don't panic like that, but we panic about wanting to know. Stop it. You're not God. You're not smart enough to handle that. Just imagine, process for a split second. If I could tell you with precision the moment you would die, would that change your life? Be honest. Do you think it would change a lot of people's lives, even if it doesn't change yours? Like if I told you like on Tuesday at 435 in 2032, You wouldn't have a countdown like those, remember those old chains we used to make in elementary school for Christmas break? You know, we, ooh, we, we'll break one off, yeah, when we get to the end, yeah. You, you wouldn't have that countdown on your phone, you wouldn't have a timer, that wouldn't change how you spent your money, that wouldn't change the things you spent your money on, that wouldn't change the foods that you ate, that wouldn't change the people that you hung out with, that wouldn't change the people you didn't hang out with, hang out with. that wouldn't change the way you talked to certain people, for good and for bad. Like imagine the last four or five days, imagine what happens, you get cut off in traffic. Oh, we're going. <laughs> this is why you don't get that. Because what would your focus be on? My focus is now on that day. And I'm now no longer living my life to the glory of God. This is why I tell you, don't get hung up. Basics, understanding for your daily life. God will judge how much of sin? All of sin. God will redeem how many of his people? All of his people. And he will do it in his good time. You be faithful in the meantime and know that he will accomplish that. And that way, everything else that you're always freaked out about that you want to get done before that day, it'll get done. Because here's the thing. Who called you home? <laughs> Who decided on Tuesday, you know, at 435, uh, at such and such a day that, that you were done that day? God did. But I had so many more plans. Oh, well. <laughs> not your plans. Not your kingdom. Not your world. You live and serve unto the glory of God as long as you have breath and not a second longer. If you figure out how to do that a second longer, we have bigger problems. 
It's my always joke about Cameron whenever I talk about my funeral. What songs do you want played? I don't care. And if I get up and complain, you have bigger problems. So you serve as long as you have breath, and when you don't, you don't. And know that God's kingdom is being built, that he is accomplishing his plans and his purposes, and whatever that, whenever that day may come, it will be good for his people, and probably not so good for not his people. And that's also part of the lesson here. So let's keep building. Verse 3. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Now, let's be honest. In conquering armies of the ancient world territory, that's not like the worst thing in the world, right? I mean, it's not good. You don't want to be selling and trading people. But considering what ancient armies did to people when they conquered cities, that's better than most. Why is that the standard? The answer is because of who we're talking about and what it demonstrates. And this is one of the things that we get twisted up about life. So often we are distracted by the things of the world because they're the obvious things that we see. And I'm, I've always told you this. Who you are and why you are. When you encounter the sin of the world, when you encounter the arguments of the world, recognize that your argument should not be on what they're doing. Who are they and why are they? The underlying reason for the things of this world. Why do we, so case in point, we look at the proliferation of sexuality in our world, and we look at the depravity that that creates, and you know what we start attacking? Don't do that. Don't be like that. Don't look at that. Now let's stop. Why do you want that? Why do you want to look at that? Why do you want to live that way? What are you actually attacking? What are they attacking? The end of the day, they're attacking the people of God, which means they're really attacking who? God. This is not about you. This is not about what you would prefer in the world. This is about, ah, two things every atheist knows for sure. Sure or what? There is no God, and I hate him. It is a warring against God. This is a conversation we had years ago in men's Bible study, an understanding for the world. They hate you because you're a reminder. You're a reminder that there's a different way, that there's a better way, that it doesn't have to be like this. I mean, I forget where I gave this example, but I'll give it again. Have fun. If you want to have some fun sometime, go perusing through some Wikipedia pages. I'm probably the first pastor to tell you to actually go look at Wikipedia. And have fun. Go back and look at the golden age of Hollywood. So go back and look at like the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And here's what I want you to look at. Look at the actors and the actresses and how many times they were married and divorced. And then go, you're laughing because some of you are like, you, you pull up this woman from like 1942 that you've never heard of. And it's like eight husbands <laughs> and none of the marriages last more than three years. Now go click on the movies and look at the producers and the studio heads. And look at their marriages. And you know what you'll see? One. And it lasted for decades. Now, does that make them better people? No. It means that the vision of life that they promoted and showed to the public is not what they themselves lived. They recognized that there was a better way. Now, they're behind the scenes up in the hills living in their mansions. They're not visible. So you're, you're not tempted by them if you're living in your own depravity. But you now come along and you live like them. What are you reminding me about my world and my life? 
You're reminding me of the darkness. You're reminding me of the brokenness, and you're showing me that there's something beyond just this. And therefore, I don't hate me, I hate you. You're the problem because you're telling me what's wrong, even if you haven't said a word. That's the war against God that goes on on a regular basis. That's why the phrase that has come into our modern culture is you will be made to care. Remember the argument from 20 years ago? How does this definition of marriage affect your marriage? How quickly did that go to bake the cake? To celebrate? To you now have to use the words that I demand in the way that I demand them or else? Because it was never about you. It was never about what you believed. It was never about what you said. It was always about the God who has instructed you. They don't hate you. They hate him. Which is again why I tell you, don't argue with the things of the world. Argue with the worldview that is behind it. Attack not the head. Attack the heart. Preach the gospel. Proclaim Christ. Yes, they will hate you. Yes, they will war against you. They're going to hate you and war against you anyway. But unless you change the heart with the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for sinners, then you have no means by which to rescue. You have no means by which to change. You have to center your life on Christ and Christ alone. So with that said, let's show you why. Verse 4. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? That's the question for the nations since the beginning of time. Which, by the way, these are the enemies of Israel. This would be um, north of Israel. This would also be the western coast of Israel. The, uh, the, the Philistines, you want to talk about history never having seemingly an end? You know the Philistines centered in what we know as Gaza, right? <laughs> That the Philistines basically are centered on that southwestern coast, what we would call the Gaza Strip. It's not like we're still fighting over it 2,800 years later. <laughs> when I tell you there's nothing new under the sun, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, the reason I say this is the question for the nations, Christian, is because this should be the reminder for you. Who are they? Well, they're the pagan nations that surround Israel, which means they are not what? They are not Israel. They are not John 1. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is not these pagan nations, then, now, and forevermore. That's a problem. Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me, swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense upon your head. That's probably not something you want to root for. Like, no, 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 God, we're paying you back. We are making amends. We're going to make this right. And God goes, oh, I like that. Thank you. Stop it. <laughs> Why? Genesis 4. It came about of the, in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought on the firstlings of his flock in their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what the problem with Cain's offering is, and there's two main theories on it. There's probably a couple other minor ones. Main ones are... Cain's bringing the wrong offering for the wrong thing. So there's a sin offering, which requires what? Life, blood. 
So Abel bringing of the flock is bringing the correct offering here for the sin offering. Cain doesn't want to bring that offering. He's bringing something else. The other question becomes, well, are there other offerings? Well, yes, we've read that last couple weeks in Joel, right? There's the drink offering. There's a grain offering. These things would make sense. So if Cain is bringing one of those offerings, why is he rejected? The answer is because he is rejected because of the attitude of his heart, because of who he is before God and his condition before a holy God. What is that condition? It's the condition that infects all of humanity down through the line. That's why you get things like Micah 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. To what does the Lord, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, I'm partial to the first argument that it's the wrong offering from Cain, but I'm also sympathetic to the second because the problem of humanity is we want to give the offering we want to give in the way we want to give it because who do we think is in charge? And that's our problem. Does God take delight in the offerings? Yes. That's why he commanded Israel to do what? To offer them. What does Solomon do at the dedication of the temple? Go have some fun. Read up on Solomon. Solomon slaughters like a a, a medium-sized farm at the dedication of the temple. Was God up in heaven going, you people with your ostentatious displays of affection, I can't believe you. No. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He looks down. This is a people worshiping, serving God, giving of themselves freely. Why is that good? And then the sacrifice is bad later on. What changed? Not the sacrifice, the heart behind it. This is what the prophets are calling Israel to always. This is what Joel is calling them to always, warning them. The the sacrifice has gone away. What do you need to do, uh, Israel? Oh, we need to hurry up and offer more sacrifice. No, you need to check your heart before God. Call out in repentance and faith. And then the sacrifices return. Not so that the sacrifice will be renewed, but because you have been renewed. It's a checking of your heart before God. Christian, this is the work that you engage in each and every day. Who are you? Why are you? What do you live for in this place? That's why I wanted to go through, one of the reasons I wanted to go through Colossians, to leave Colossians 3.17 ringing in your ears as you live your life. That as you live, you live your life unto the glory of God in all things, all of the things. And by the way, if you don't think we segment the things in our life, um, give you a really bad story on this one. I took a seminary class. I was, I'd taken most of my credits, and you always get to, if you've ever taken a college degree of any kind, you have done this at some point, where you start looking, how many hours do I have, and how many hours do I need, and what can I do to get done with this? <laughs> Especially because a typical master's degree program is between 30 and 45 hours. An MDiv in a Southern Baptist seminary is over 100. I was tired of being there, and, it only, and I graduated in two and a half years. <laughs> Yeah, what brain cells? So I took a pass-fail marriage and family course. The, the condition was my wife had to attend with me. You had to be married, and you had to have your wife attend the class. It was like on Tuesday evenings. Was it Tuesdays? With, uh, with Dr. Catanzaro, Dr. Frank Catanzaro from South Carolina. How there is a man 
an Italian man named Frank Catanzaro from South Carolina. I will never understand, but so is the kingdom. And trying to give us this understanding of marriage and relationships and all of this. And this was his encouragement. Pray during sex. See, some of you made the same face we all made. And we went, that this was his great example. He goes, do you think God's waiting in the living room? Do you think he doesn't know? Do you think he doesn't know what's going on? He's sitting in there going, do people hurry up in there? I have things to do. Now, why do I tell you that? Because it changes how you think about who God is, where God is, and what God is actually involved with. Who are you? Why are you? All things unto the glory of God. That's how we're called to think in this world. That's how we're called to live in this world because it is how we think in this world. If you don't, then you are already drifting away and that's a dangerous place to be. And it's what the world is trying to do to you on a regular basis. Now, why are they trying to do that? Verse five. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them from their territory. Because that's humanity at its core. This goes all the way back to Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what will happen? Verse 7. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them. Return your recompense upon your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Justice will be done. Now, why, Joel, are you using this as an example of what it looks like when God judges? Because this is what they viewed as their dominion. Who actually exercises dominion over the creation? God does. It's his creation. He made it. He runs it. He rules it. Matthew 7. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. I told you, sometimes God condescends, and sometimes God uses that condescension to go, oh, that's what you would like. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) See where that gets you. This is part of what a culture under judgment actually looks like, is it looks like people being left to their own devices just to do what they want. It's the punchline of the book of Judges. And there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, who was king in Israel in those days? God was. And yet he said, this is how you want. You want to live as if there is no accountability. You want to live as if there is no king. You want to do whatever you would love, as Paul puts it, to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Okay, fine. What does your world now look like? This has been societies as they forsake God from the beginning. It will be societies as they forsake God until the end of time. Christian, now what do you do? Do you just go screaming into the void? No, there's a better way. And think, you weirdo. (laughs) You live your better way. You ground yourself upon Christ. Live your life unto the glory of God. And when people, why don't you? Why can't we? Now we have a conversation point. Now we have a testimony to who God is and what he has accomplished. This is how you live in the day in and day out. You don't change the world. You change your world. Who you are. Again, where's your first ministry? At home. Begins with you. Who you are, how you live, the people you've been given influence to. Encouraging them as they go out and then never letting them let go of the rope. 
This is the thing we too often do is we go out into the world and pretend like that the anchor that we've attached to Christ, well, you know, it'll be there. It'll yank me back when I need to. That's not the goal. The goal is, okay, yeah, still there. Still there. It's why I keep my keys on a clip on, my, on the back of my, on my back of my pant loop. Cameron will laugh at me once in a while because she'll be like, what are you doing? I'll be in the store and I'll just kind of like shake my hip to one side. I'm like, I haven't felt my keys and I just shake them so they hit me in the rear end. But like, okay, I didn't lose my keys anywhere because that's happened before. That's how you should be with the anchor. Shouldn't be, no, 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 Jesus has got me. Does Jesus got you? Yes. Does that mean you live however you feel like in the hopes that one day he'll just snatch the rope back and you'll be all right? No. Periodically just go, okay, yeah, all right. Still there, still good, still in the right place, making sure that I'm thinking and living rightly because I know what my anchor actually is. So what will happen next? Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up. Does that sound like a good plan with the locusts? <laughs> Do you want to go put on your armor and go into battle against the locusts the size of the horses with the armor? And, and, and See, I don't either. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears and let the weak, the weak say, I am a mighty man. That would be a good reason to assemble because, Christian, there's victory. What are God's terms for battle? You go into battle against the Lord. What are his terms? Surrender. There's no negotiation. Well, we will give you this land in exchange for that you're already dead. (laughs) You already died the minute you started trying to negotiate. God's terms are surrender. And what does that surrender achieve? It actually achieves victory. Just process that for a minute. Your surrender achieves victory. I mentioned this in Sunday school. I told you I'd read it today. The, uh, the initial proclamation of the gospel in the gospel of Mark, Jesus's ministry, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what's believe in the gospel? It's repent of your sin and know that God's provision covers your sin. It is surrender that I cannot overcome, that I cannot proclaim a victory because I cannot defeat my sin, but God can. Therefore, as I surrender unto him, I am victorious over sin. This is what it looks like to be the last who will become first. People who have humbled themselves so that they may be exalted. It is a man who says, I am weak, therefore I am strong. This is Christian living in the world. This is why I forever tell you, you don't change their mind. You can't change their ways. You can't, okay, you're right. You can't change your ways. <laughs> you, you can't. We've talked about this before. Um, I've given myself as an example. Cameron, I just had this conversation this morning. You know, like, number one thing everybody wants to do, right? What does everybody want to do in this world? It's the simplest, silliest thing that we all care so much about. What do we all want to do? We all want to lose weight. <laughs> you, how many of you woke up this morning and be like, I am an Adonis and I love myself and my body? <laughs> You're laughing at me because every last one of you went, I need to go jog. I need to delete this. I shouldn't have had that cake yesterday. It doesn't matter who we are. This is how we think. You know, at the end of the day, losing weight's really easy. Eat less food than you, you know, eat less food than you burn. This is actually quite simple. You know, it's really, really hard keeping it off because you know what we do when we lose weight? We go, ooh, cake. <laughs> I have... 
earned this. <laughs> and you know what I've earned? I've earned 28 trips to the Cracker Barrel, no, to, to the Golden Corral this year. <laughs> you go, you hook the little feed bag up to the back of your head, tie it off, you know, just fill it up. You got a barbecue sauce IV. <sighs> Why? Because I starved myself for four months. I have earned this. And what do we do two months later? I got to lose weight again. We don't change. This is human nature in a nutshell. Now, what changes you? The gospel. This is, again, why I tell you, you can't change their lives because you can't change your life, but he can change both. And as we are rested in him, as we are surrendered to him, we are actually empowered by the work of the Spirit to accomplish what he has set out for us in his kingdom work. And this is the proclamation that we have to make on a daily basis. And part of that proclamation, look, you will never hear me tell you, no, you preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That's stupid. You always have to use words when you preach something, okay? Always. Francis of Assisi didn't say it. Francis of Assisi would have smacked you if, you told, if he found out that you said that about him. He was an interesting character, by the way. Just, you know, loved animals, didn't always like people. I kind of have an affinity for that guy. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, Francis did not like that. He would not have appreciated that. What I am telling you is that proclamation has to be built on something, and it's built on the understanding of who you are in Christ and how you live in this world in light of who you are in Christ. I'm trying to rescue you. You, you know why most of us don't proclaim Christ more often, right? Because the minute we do, you know what everybody's going to call us, right? Hypocrites! And you know why they're going to call us that? Because they're right. Because they're right. I'm trying to rescue me and you from that by saying, okay... Why are we hypocrites? Because I recognize that the thing that I want to do is not the thing that I'm doing, and the thing that I don't want to do is the thing that I'm doing. What's the cure for that? For that too, Christ has died. To return in repentance and faith and to surrender. Now, don't wait until the Holy Spirit has to go, hey, stop that. Wake up each morning. Evaluate. The minute you catch yourself going, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) That running dialogue, that monologue you have in your head that you're arguing with all the time, Lose the argument every so often and recognize that I need change. I need surrender. And it is only God by his spirit that actually accomplishes that. Then you're a hypocrite. I know. And yet he died for me. And yet he has redeemed me. And yet he is rescuing me day by day. And by the way, (laughs) and then you can actually move into removing the speck from your brother's eye. This is the Christian living that we're longing for. This is what we look towards. I've lost my space. (laughs) Um, Hasten, verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, that will be good news or bad news, depending on what? Whether you're a Neil Diamond fan or not. Just make sure you're still paying attention. Whether you are in Christ or or you are not. First uh, Corinthians 1. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's why this continues. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. 
that should be a comfort to you, Christian. All the scary part at the beginning shouldn't worry you. Those are the Israelites at the mountain freaked out because God has shown up. We want the attitude that Moses had. And God called and Moses went up the mountain. Why? That's God. That's who's redeemed me. That's who's rescued me. Yes, there is judgment aplenty. Yes, there is wickedness aplenty in this world. But he has redeemed and rescued me, so I don't fear. That's why you get to the end of the book, and what's the call out constantly? Come, Lord Jesus, quickly, please, because I'm not afraid of the judgment, and I'm not afraid of what this world might do, because I have Christ, and because I have Christ, I have his kingdom, and I am secure. Then you will know, verse 17, that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. In other words, his people will be secure, because who has secured them? He has. Finish up here. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. All that was judged will be good. Just realize that. What did those locusts do? What What was the world like before the army of the Lord? It was like in Eden. It was like the garden, beautiful and lush. What did it look like after they marched through? scorched, nothing, destruction. And now what? After God has judged and everything has been accomplished, what do we have again? Garden. Do do deserts just turn back into gardens like from Monday to Tuesday? They do when God redeems them. Why? Romans 8. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Everything that is broken will be put back together. All of sin will be judged, and everything that God is redeeming will actually be redeemed. Verse 19, Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in the land they have shed innocent blood. In other words, all of God's enemies. Egypt symbolizing what? That slavery that God has redeemed them from. Edom, what? That brother always nipping at the heels, always pulling them into into sin, always being that other example of how life could have gone. God's enemies will be what? Torn down. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are at Christ, who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. I don't know about you, but that's pretty much everything that most people would be worried about. <laughs> the enemies of this world, undone. The enemies of what feels like the world to come, undone. Because God is conquered. Because God is victorious. And what are his terms for you to be his people? Surrender. And by your surrender, you to stand victorious. And here's your proof at the last. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Why shouldn't you take vengeance when you really, really, really want to? 
Deuteronomy 32, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Hebrews quotes from Doug for later, uh, later on in the chapter that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So what do you do, Christian? You want victory. You want peace. You want rest. You want security. You want Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your security, your peace, your strength in the midst of judgment is found in Christ. Your everything is found in Christ. Your hope, your rest, your calm. All the things that we look for here, that here provides how often? Never. Are found in Christ. Who are you? Why are you? And are you checking that anchor rope every so often? Engage in that Christian each and every day, and the charge of hypocrisy is gone. The worry in this world is gone. The fear of what may come is gone because Christ is present. And that is what we long for each day, to serve and worship him in who we are and how we live. And Christian, that's been the argument for centuries because that's what God is doing for his people and what he has done. Trust that he is working out his history. Trust that he is building his kingdom. And trust the promises for we know that they are good. Let's pray.